Hello and welcome to the 25th episode of the Sports Map Podcast. My name is Nick Kane and this is a podcast where we're talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation and return to performance. Super excited for today's episode with the Australian Boomers, head physiotherapist and also the head physiotherapist for the Sydney Kings in the NBL in David Hillard. Today with David we'll be chatting around uh, his common area of interest being the ankle, but also other lower limb injuries. And um, we'll also touch on some patellotendinopathy management in basketball athletes. Aside from the injury chat, we'll be going through a little bit of the inner workings of the Boomers camp uh, and also how day to day in that sort of team operates, as well as some fantastic sort of insights from the bronze medal winning team in the Beijing Olympics. Now, we reference it a couple of times throughout the podcast when we're talking around Dave's uh, rehab strategies to the ankle, but David has uh, done a recent masterclass with us on lateral ankle injuries, which was a, a fantastic take right from the sort of onset of the ankle to return to play. Uh, plenty of rehab exercises throughout that for people to sort of reference and also look at how he may assess an, uh, an ankle and also what type of metrics he's looking at uh, throughout the rehab stage to sort of move through each criteria and obviously then into return to playing. So I think uh, bringing both the podcast and the masterclass together, it will just be one really comprehensive um, learning opportunity for, for you guys out there. So hopefully uh, you really enjoy this chat with Dave. So we have two new events coming up at SportsMap and one of which is a evening of free education and that's on the Monday the 26th of June at 7pm. Uh, and that is online only, but you do need to register on our website. It's all online and it's, a, I guess, a, a showcase of some of our greatest hits and of some of the sports map content, as well as uh, some brand new chats with some of the experts delving a little deeper into a few different topics. Um, we're looking, it is limited still uh, to people, how many people we can have on board there. So it's, it's filling up quite quickly. So head over and register. It features the likes of Hamish McCauley, Craig Purdom, Stu Iman, Jill Cook, Peter Maliaris, Ebony Rio, Andrew Mosler, Dave Hillard, and, and Nick King. So uh, looking forward to the evening and hopefully you can come and join us for that. And secondly, our face-to-face event is with Tim McGrath on knee rehab and return to play, and that's on in November on the 11th and 12th this year. And that'll be held at the Essen Football Club in Melbourne. It's a one-off event. It won't be sort of moving around to another state or city. So please, um, if you're interested in working through the whole start to finish of a knee, ACL and, and other knee conditions, rehabilitation, then it's certainly not one to miss. Uh, Tim has a PhD in this space and has worked in uh, elite sport for many years. And, and those who don't know too much about Tim can tune into our upcoming podcast on PCL injuries with Tim. So um, looking forward to another face-to-face event. Can't wait to see you all there. And uh, yeah, let's... Um, move on with that with your podcast welcome to the podcast dave yeah thanks nick thanks for asking me on mate it's a it's a pleasure to have you on and um we're going to chat through some things around your work in the with the boomers in basketball uh and obviously then sort of move into a space that you have a great interest in in around ankles and other basketball related injuries uh, but before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your career as a, as a physio and um, how you are balancing your couple of roles now? Yeah, so been working as a physio since 2000, uh, but only really started to knuckle down or focus, I guess, on where I wanted to head in about 2010 as I was finishing my Muscle and Sports Physio. And at that time, managed to 
get into a clinic at Sydney Uni and started to link up with the Sydney Flames, who are a women's professional basketball team in Sydney. And that led sports physio world is very much um, doors open because of networks and you do a good job. People meet you, they recommend you. So very, my career has been very fortunate to work with good people and be in the right place at the right time. And for any upcoming young physios out there, like the other part is just saying yes. If an opportunity presents, like just take it, go for it, because you don't know where that will then lead. Um, so there's certainly plenty of gigs and my wife will speak to this that uh, I've traveled a hell of a lot worked with just random teams or different sports um, and loved every minute of it. But I know that that has created a network that allowed me to get to where I am today. Uh, so going back, work with the Flames, that allowed me to get into basketball Australia teams. 2017, the Australian Boomers were um, looking for a new league physio and I was lucky enough to interview and, and was successful in getting that job. So I've been with them since then. One of the Australian boomers, 2017, I also set up my own clinic called Zone 34, and so I've been running that over the last six years. The Australian boomers assistant coach came on board as the Sydney Kings uh, head coach in 2019, and having worked with him on a few tours, he the Kings were in a transition. They were also looking for a new physio, and so I got asked to come on board at the Kings. So we've been doing that for the last four seasons. I share that role with a couple of excellent upcoming sports physios, Simon Hall, covered it for three years with me and the last season was Alice Brown who's also in the clinic with us so that's just great to work with the next generation of uh, sports physios and share that role and then last year as well we um, the Sydney Kings and Sydney Flames uh, are basically a, a partnership so we've also been looking after the Flames for the last 12 months okay sounds like you've got a full book that's for sure uh, tell us a little bit about uh, like Zone 34 and how it integrates and sort of how, how you got it going yeah, so I set it up in 2017, just had a few ideas of what my perfect work environment would be. Again, I was, what, late 30s at that point and knew that I, I was going to be, I loved the profession and it was going to be a private practice. So I wanted to create an environment that inspired me to come to work every day for the next 30 years or so and also to be able to work with experienced people with their own expertise uh, who I could learn off as well uh, rather than being an older physio surrounded by uh, younger upcoming ones. I wanted to be able to pick the brains of others around me. So that's what we've really set up. We've got a bunch of physios who are all 20 plus years experience, a dance physio, a hand therapist, sports dietitian, uh, exercise phys. So it's just a great multidisciplinary environment to be able to share ideas, pick each other's brains and, and re refer internally so that our patients get the best outcome. Yeah, sounds really well integrated. Uh, and and your other your other work where you're spending a lot of your time is with the the boomers. Now I was really interested just to sort of hear your take on how that sort of role looks. And, and I, I picture that it's sort of based around some training camps that you go to. And if that's the case, uh, how do you sort of integrate with the team? How do you work with them? And you're obviously working with a number of players coming from you know international teams and things like that, all in one place. And it must be a, a pretty happening environment. Yeah, uh, it's certainly. A dream sort of environment to work with an Aussie team like that's an absolute joy uh, but it's it varies from a lot of other sports Socceroos is probably the best comparison in terms of Australian sport in let's say in the last four years well even the last two years since the Olympics and we've been going through a World Cup cycle we've had something 40 something athletes come through and represent Australia around that time 
number of different coaching staff have come through. That's just the nature of these qualifying windows. We have three to four a year, 10 to 12 days at a time. And it just depends on where it falls in the schedule of the MBL or international sport of just who's available. Uh, so it's great flux. Let's, we'll narrow it down maybe to the World Cup, which is coming up this year. And a day in the life. So my role, my official term is head of medical, um, but you could also link it a little bit to like a head of performance kind of role in that um, I'll do all the obvious physio things. So let's say on the morning we get up, um, the team doc, another physio, S&C, we'll maybe have a meeting and we'll just go through the playing list, make sure we know who's available, if there's anything we need to act on that morning before training. Um, I'll fill any summaries up to like a, a main coach, maybe the head coach, maybe a lead assistant, to just confirm if there's any changes to who's available for the day. Um, we'll head off to training or maybe at the hotel, we'll start doing some prep for training, uh, get some guys ready. And then once we're at training, it's the usual thing, SNC or physio will help lead a warm up. Whilst the session's on, it's wearing many hats. Like basically, if anyone's toured with a team, uh, they'll know that the physio's not, the amount of physio work you do, strictly physio work, is a very small part. So you're being the dietitian, you're being a um, team manager, you're going to the laundry. So you're doing a bit of everything. So at training, we'll set up the nutrition and hydration to make sure there's food for the guys, both in session and post. Um, we may even be working with media. So these guys are high profile athletes. And so the media are wanting to organize phone calls or interviews, etc., photo shoots. And so part of my role is to work with media and our team manager to make sure that any requests also are built into the daily schedule so it doesn't compromise any team sessions or the guy's recovery or treatment needs. So a little bit of being that middleman and trying to see the, the big picture. And then post-session, S&C might lead recovery. Uh, the physios will lead any hands-on treatment or assessment of conditions. And the team doctor will be around with us the whole time as well. And as the afternoon winds on, we'll start looking at this upcoming schedule, what's planned for tomorrow, what's planned for the next week. Um, do we need to change any training times? Do we need to flag with the coaches that maybe tomorrow an athlete's availability has changed from what was expected? Check in on what their planned training load is. Is it a low, medium, high day? Do we need? Do we still happy with that? Do we need to tweak anything? Uh, so yeah, it's a pretty encompassing role, but a lot of fun. Would it be fair to say that guys who are actually injured or in rehab, so to speak, they would generally not be on camp, and they'll probably just send them send them off back to their teams to to be rehabilitated. Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair summary. Certainly in these short duration camps, a 10 or 12 day window, if a guy is injured, then he hasn't even turned up or we send him home pretty quick. Uh, a World Cup is six weeks duration. So it's pretty unlikely, if a player is injured, uh, it's pretty unlikely they're with us unless it's maybe a two week injury. I've certainly had a selection camp where a guy came in with a hamstring and we had to manage him for the first two or three days. And by day five was his only day to go flat out at training and he was good enough in that one full day at training to make the squad um, but generally if players are injured yeah they're not with us it's very much different to a Sydney Kings or AFL environment like a, a whole season where you'll see an injury from day zero and rehab them to return to play um, in the Aussie team environment our from the medical team's point of view we have to nail the diagnosis so we'll be on site we'll um, work out the first diagnosis arrange scans if needed We'll obviously inform our 
our player, the coaching group, and manage that initial plan of like, do they stay with us or do we need to send them home? Um, and have that discussion internally. And then after that, we're starting to talk to the player's contracted club, maybe their agent, and start working out logistics further from there. How do we get them home? How long are they out for? What sort of handover are we giving to their, their own club? And I imagine the uh, the bronze winning team uh, at the recent Olympics, that would have been a pretty tremendous experience to be a part of and, and watch that. Huge highlight just to get to the Olympics is an amazing environment. Um, COVID obviously made it very unique internally, just what you were allowed to do and the process of getting to Japan. And even our camp lead up um, was very different to what we'd expect this year. Um, but from day one, once we got to, we started with a training camp in Los Angeles and from day one, you could sense the playing group were locked in. Like they, they knew they had a job to do, uh, and it was just another level of just resolve and focus throughout the squad. And they just, they kept themselves accountable, but they also held all the staff really accountable. Was, you guys might've heard about gold vibes only, but it was very much like everything that happened every day had to be what will get us a gold medal and anything short of that wasn't good enough. So uh really enjoy that environment where everyone was just um, justifying every action with that in mind. The gold medal was the goal. Uh, and then I'm, I was pretty average around the world, but certainly in Australia, and I'll speak for my family here, but it was peak lockdown in Australia. And you could just sense that everyone at home, stuck at home, were on the TV watching the Olympics and, and right behind us. Uh, so all the players and... Uh, even support staff, like we're getting messages from people who weren't basketball fans and maybe not even sports fans normally, but they were right on board for the journey. So there was this real wave from back home and then even internally in the village. So normally for anyone who's um, not so familiar with the Games Village, but athletes, they might compete in swimming on day one and then once they finish, they'll go out and they'll explore the local city, which could have been Tokyo, go watch some BMX riding, go support the basketball but because of COVID, you weren't allowed to leave the village and you were even, once you finished your event, you were done in 48 hours. But though, because everyone was there, the Australian team, we just felt so much tighter um, because everyone was there stuck inside the, the walls of our apartment building and they were all interested in what all the other Aussie teams were doing. And yeah, the, the team environment was amazing. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool, and yeah, it was certainly unreal to watch, and a, and a massive uh, achievement would have been fantastic to to play a role in that, mate. Which I, I'm sure you did some tremendous work to assist the boys to to get the bronze. Um, I was going to sort of we'll flip into a chatting a little bit around some clinical based things. So in this case, uh, like ankles being an area of your expertise and something that you see a lot within basketball, and certainly your role with the Sydney Kings that you'd sort of manage a lot of guys through with ankle injuries and I'd reference um, you know a tremendous masterclass you did for SportsMap uh, which is available up on our, on our platform at the moment on ankle sprain injuries it was a really detailed take all the way from assessment through to the stages of rehabilitation and return to play so we'll, we'll chat through some things around the ankles but that's clearly a much more detailed um, approach to your ankle management and strategies than we'll get in this chat um, but I guess first and foremost around you know Ankle's been probably one of the most common, and you can correct me here, common injuries in basketball. What are some of the key preventative strategies that you guys put in place at Sydney Kings or or how you'd see those um, implemented within the program? Yeah, so you're certainly right that ankle sprains are the most common injury 
um, in terms of rates per 1,000 hours or athlete exposures, however you want to measure it. Uh, injury prevention programs, like we know there's, there's two successful things in terms of um, reducing rates within the individual. So a ongoing, uh, well-implemented injury risk reduction program. So something that's going to involve some proprioception, some ankle strength training, landing. So building that into a program and that could be individualized. So we might say out of our squad of 14, maybe eight of them have a history of ankle sprains and those ones will get extra work-ons or individual prep before training. Whereas maybe someone else with a tendinopathy is doing more quads tendinopathy or patella tendinopathy might be doing more tendon-based work-ons before training. So we want to build in something that's individualized and across the team as well. Like everyone will do something in the team warm-up or maybe in the gym session that has some sort of ankle stability focus. So exercise work really well if done regularly and for a lot of minutes across the season. And then taping or bracing is also successful at reducing the rates of uh, injuries. So we, at the start of each season, strongly recommend all the guys that they should be taped. Um, generally, they don't brace. It doesn't look good with the shoes. But uh, yeah, we strongly recommend that they all tape. And then from there, we... Um, We'll listen to some guys. There might be some who have a preference that they don't tape and we'll, we'll work individually with them. Um, so that's, yeah, the two main strategies we're going to look at. And the third one, giving that the biggest risk of an ankle sprain is having had ankle sprains before, ankle instability before. Uh, but that's that next level of that is choosing your recruitment. And so if you're bringing in people to the club that already have had a history of recurrent ankle sprains, you're already like behind the eight ball a little bit there. Um, but... Being basketball, it's such a common injury that if you're choosing your squad on who has or hasn't had an ankle sprain, you're going to be choosing from a very small pool. So you mentioned some of the um, the exercises approach there around um, proprioception and, and a couple of other aspects. Do you have a few, I guess, little benchmarks that you like your players to have as a preventative model, um, whether that be you know, calf endurance or a proprioceptive measure or anything like that that you sort of get the guys to make sure they're they're to us up to a, a certain level i wouldn't say there's any one benchmark but to give you an idea of like our pre-season screening and these aren't ankle specific measures either um, but we'll certainly look at calf endurance so single leg calf raise to fatigue we'll look at isometric seated calf strength um, so using some force plates and our um, goal is more than 1.5 times body weight um, we'll look at a hop test both a linear hop um, so a single hop for distance, for example, stick to landing, and some sort of lateral moving hop. So it could be a triple crop, triple crossover hop for distance, or maybe a side hop in 30 seconds. And you could steal all of these. You could say they're knee assessments or typical in ACL. Um, but we'll look at some of those. And obviously at this point, we're also looking at left versus right, looking for any differences there. So I, I wouldn't put a dorsiflexion knee to wall if we're looking for a range. But I wouldn't say there's any one test that would really stand out. If you're narrowing down on someone further, you might look at things like a star excursion balance test. And um, But it, yeah, we want to see good symmetry. We want to see good scores, both for the sport and based on body weight. Nice. And we'll come back to a couple of where I guess some of those tests may play a role in our return to play talking to an ankle. But before we get to that, um, I just want to touch a little bit on acute management for an ankle, uh, and I know, you know, obviously one we hear around, you know, icing and not icing, and then 
you know, there's some uh, strong beliefs around good sound compression. What's, you know, it's a, it's a, it might seem as a simple question, but what's your go-tos for when you get a new acute ankle straight from the game, straight after? What are you doing and what are you advising for the next 24 to 48 hours? Yep, so pretty simple. Just even the first thing is um, making sure that we get a pretty good diagnosis on what it is. Um, so if you happen to be pitch side or um, next to the footy oval, just taking the time to get a good handle on what it is to make sure we don't miss things that maybe need to be escalated further earlier. Um, but let's let's just say it's a lateral ankle sprain uh, and we're confident we haven't got a fracture or anything else rolling around in there. Uh, I'm massive on compression. That's my go-to. Um, and we'll throw in ice there, ice for uh, analgesia. So I'm, I haven't thrown the ice away. I absolutely understand the pushback and... Um, some discussion around the evidence around it. Uh, it's great for analgesia. It may allow someone to walk better. Uh, there, it's a difficult thing to change as well in terms of coaches and athletes' mind. Like it's so embedded and ingrained in the sport that um, if they don't see a bag of ice coming out straight away, they're almost like feeling like you're not doing your job. Um, so if I'm throwing ice, it's more for the analgesia side of things, uh, but compression for me is pretty key and that could be anything from a compression bandage and different kind of wraps elasticated wraps some sort of compression boot um, game ready just something to try and minimize the swelling because from personal experience if it's let's say it's an ankle sprain a lateral ankle sprain uh, the amount of swelling and secondary stiffness and pain related to that is one of the key determinants in how quickly someone can return to play so if someone has a partial grade ATFL uh, and we've got the coach straight away or the CEO saying to me, how long are they out for? And I'll, I'll say like crystal ball, this could be five days or it could be five weeks, uh, but we'll know more in the next 24 to 48 hours because the amount of swelling that that person has is going to greatly change their, their ability to return to run over the next week or two. Awesome. Okay, so I'll break down just two questions from what you've talked about there. Um, can you roll off just, uh, you mentioned around diagnosis and not missing a couple of other things. And I know, again, I don't want to reference a masterclass too much. We did talk through this. Um, but can you roll off a couple of those diagnoses that we do not want to miss that we that may present with what's a, what's a typical ankle injury? Yeah, so a simple, two simple ones for me that uh, can get easily missed is a... Um, just slightly further down, so a couple of centimetres away from the ATFL or the, sorry, maybe the tip of the fibula, uh, is either a bifurcate ligament sprain or a, could be otherwise an anterior process of calcaneus fracture. So this is down at the calcaneo cubo joint. Similar mechanism, plantar flexion and inversion mechanism. Uh, and the difference is just the swelling and the pain is just a little bit lower. Uh, but it's easy to miss, particularly if someone's had recurrent ankle instability and they've got a, a really lax anterior draw test so you pick that up and you think it's a high grade lateral ligament and you just stop looking any further but the history would have told you actually i've rolled my ankle five times before so no wonder they've got a pain-free but lax atfl so that's one on the lateral high ankle sprains or a aitfl sprain would be the other most uh, likely one that you'd be hunting for if they're coming in with anterior lateral ankle pain uh, so go looking for them because that's it's a different management um, in terms of what you're going to encourage or not encourage. Are we allowing impact as early? Are we doing pushing into dorsiflexion ranges early? Do we need to immobilize in different ways? 
Um, so making sure we don't miss that because it is a slightly different management approach and they just prognostically tend to be slower than a standard lateral ankle sprain. And then associated pathology might be like, a is there pain on the medial side? Have they compressed the deltoid ligament? Have they got some sort of bone impaction or bone edema in the medial talus? Because again, all these things change the prognosis and the length of time for return to play. All right, and uh, you, the, at the tail end of the, the, the last question, you mentioned around the swelling and, and stiffness and how that may limit their ability to get running. Uh, aside from, or what are some of your indicators to get running? And I guess here we're chatting through some of those aspects around our mid-stage rehab. What's What do you like to, to see to just get them going from a running standpoint? Yeah, so I would want to see there's good enough range, both dorsiflexion and what that is could vary because we've spoken that some people are running around pro athletes AFL and basketball and they need a warm-up four or six on a good day. So um, we want to see functional levels of range of motion to allow them to run the way they would normally run. Um, so whatever that dorsiflexion is, you need enough plantar flexion as well that maybe someone's got a lot of swelling and they're getting posterior impingement symptoms. So if you can't push off in a plantar flexion, you're probably going to struggle to run well or accelerate well, uh, or even decel to be honest, because you need um, quick impact into a plantar flexion position when you're deceling quickly. Um, so there, your range of motion is important. And then we're looking at simple things like calf capacity, how many single leg calf raises can you do to fatigue? Is that close to your normal? Um, what sort of strength are you generating in an isometric calf raise that we are talking about before? And then from there, just even just competencies of movement, like can they do some rate of force development with some pogo jumps, A skips, hop on the spot? and work our way up that chain until we're confident they can just start a linear straight line run. Lovely. And so it's a, it's a nice indicator to get running. And from personal experience, I guess I've found uh, some of the, you mentioned how the, the swelling and the stiffness can be the limiting factor. A lot of the time it's that medial pain, uh, whether it's deltoid contusion or some medial bone contusion, that's a real limiting factor as well in athletes. What's your way around that? Is that, is that do we just need to wait on that for time or is there things you can do to sort of get ahead of that um, so it's a less limiting factor and to be able to get them moving earlier and pain and, and feeling better? Yeah, so one depends on which one of those two it is because I'll treat a medial talus bone bruise more, not more respectfully, but differently to maybe a deltoid, whereas if I can manage to get the deltoid symptom-free, then we'll push on. Yep, I will maybe fill us in on, uh, on both if, that's, if, if you do something slightly different there. It'd be interesting. Um, so I'll probably preface both of these. We're lucky in pro sport that there will be a team doc involved. Um because some conditions, and this would maybe a, a one thing I think as physios we could do better, and this is a big generalized statement, but um, look for extra pair of eyes or specialties to have a look. And so sometimes with an ankle sprain, if they're just a bit slower than you'd expect or something just doesn't feel right, um, maybe there is a good chance to see a sports doc or a GP. Maybe some non-steroidal anti-inflammatories will just give someone a little kickstart to start moving forward a bit more. Um, so for both conditions I would say that's worth considering uh, and whether or not if it's significant enough to need imaging in a pro sport environment but perhaps not for for me coming in as a private patient 45 year old guy who just runs around the park once a week um, but let's say we're going deltoid so something I'd really go for is we want to offload that medial side so it almost feels counterintuitive if we've just had a lateral ankle sprain and I'm about to say to you, if their pain is medial, particularly if they're turning corners, so they're falling into 
pronation as they're turning a corner. So we might do some low die tape or throw in some um, prefabricated orthotics just to support that medial arch of the foot and take away some of the, the forces going through the deltoid. So that might be one. Whereas let's say it's the talus and that's getting impinged or, or painful under load, particularly into um, dorsiflexion. So they might respond better to a heel wedge and we're going to lift them up by six or eight mils at the back. And so therefore as they're running, changing direction, jumping, they're just not getting to that symptomatic range. So that might be just two separate ways you'd modify the symptoms based on the structure. Okay, so moving on from that, uh, I want to touch a little bit around mid-stage and mid-stage rehab, and that can be as extensive as you want to make it. But I guess sort of let's say we've got this guy running and we're sort of moving towards things that might stress the ankle a little bit more, such as change direction and basketball-based movements. How do you sort of break it up? So rather than go through like all the different exercises you do, like what are some of your key focus areas that you're just systematically sort of would work through to ensure that's a, a part of a comprehensive rehab program for these guys? Uh, so I guess the broad framework is at this point they're running and jumping and maybe they're just doing low amplitude jumps or jogging, running through at 30 to 50% speed. So we want to build up the intensity of that first. Uh, so it's still quite linear um, movements uh well with the jumping we might start with jumping up so we'll jump up a box to reduce the vertical landing forces uh, and then split the landing up into a separate movement of dropping down off a box and sticking the landing on two legs or one leg um, we might progress from low amplitude jumps so different variations of pogo jumps or single leg hops and then increase the, the amplitude by throwing in some hurdles, having to get up a 15 centimeter hurdle, 30 centimeter hurdle. Maybe it's continuous, so instead of a single hop, it becomes continuous hops, becomes continuous multi-directional hop. Um, so building up the amplitude, uh, the complexity. So the amplitude will change the, the forces going through the ankle, the landing forces, uh, complexity of movement and the the number of movements so making it continuous rather than a single so that might be how we do it the jumping uh, and then the, the running aspect will start building up speed basketball court is only 30 meters so by the time you get up to speed after 15 meters at half court you're already having to start thinking about decelerating so sometimes if someone's been out for a little while maybe we have to go out to the park outside so we can do some 80 meter run throughs maybe more like your afl guys would do um, so get some speed there load the hamstring tissue quads as well be able to stride out and then we'll start to tighten things back up and get them in a smaller space and so now we're getting into speed swerves and so some change direction movements usual things s-bends um, zigzags xl d-cell both forwards and backwards movements and just make things tighter more complex basketball guys very much because the sport i think I don't want to speak off the top um, out of line here, but the sport, like guys are touching the ball all the time. It's different to soccer and AFL where only one person can have the ball and you've got 17 other guys on the field running around. Like basketball guys are often got their hands on the ball. They're involved in the play, getting rebounds, shooting. Uh, so it's pretty tough to get a guy motivated in rehab to just run for the sake of running. So we often have to build in some shooting drills as part of it. Maybe there's some rebound. Maybe they're cutting some change direction then they receive the ball to get a jump shot in as well but i certainly find that guys are way more motivated if you link in the sport than uh, just doing a physio rehab run 
I guess pulling that together and you, you probably touched a, a little bit around some markers that you'd probably want to see based on your screening around equalising that and return to play, but maybe just touch a little, little bit on that. But as an extension of that in talking to return to play, and you mentioned there around a basketball court being only 30 metres and so they rarely get up to speed, but clearly that's, that's a really unique uh, amount of movement and, and, and type of running that they do do. Um, you know, how in tune are you to, you know, the demands of the game and then what they need to sort of uh, do prior to actually playing in a top-level competition like for the Sydney Kings or, or the Boomers? Yeah, so in terms of the demands of the game, this is where we're lucky working in pro sport that we can, we're attending every training and if the guy's not fit to do team training, he's off to the side in our rehab group. Uh, so we'll replicate as much movements of that as we can and that might involve contact. We get out there contact pad and push someone around as they're jumping for a rebound and, and landing from that jump um, maybe doing post work where they're getting pushed around maybe doing pick and roll situations where they're having to like um, pretend they're defending and fight over the top of a pick so we're exposing some controlled contact drills and then at some point as they start transitioning out of rehab we want to involve a coach as well so that they actually get some skills involved and as a physio we might be saying think they're great at um, high speed running but would still like them to do planned change of direction so we don't we don't want them to do chaotic movements just yet we want to know they need to know that they're going to do this cut or they're going to move left or right after receiving the ball rather than chaos and then the next step from that is getting other players involved so it becomes more chaotic as well so they're having to make game type reads so we'll certainly integrate the physio rehab across with the uh, coaching staff and then gradually getting back into the team training. So that would be the way we'd build in the rehab. In terms of markers, uh, right at the beginning, we've got all our clinical markers. So we know, hopefully we've done a screening, so we know what their norm is and we want to get them as close to that as possible, if not better. Uh, we want to compare left versus right. Uh, and so then there's certain milestones that we're saying, look, we know two months ago, two weeks ago, this is what you were before. And so we want to clear that. Uh, so we're confident you've got your normal strength, function, stability uh, before we give you the green light. The reality is sometimes people don't quite tick off all those things, but we know that they've got good strength, stability, they've got good function, they're confident about returning to play. And maybe there's just one or two, maybe their needle wall isn't quite back to what it would normally be. And we'll, we'll negotiate that, yep, we need to keep working that over the next couple of weeks. Uh, but everything else is ticking that we've decided it's safe for you to return to play. And I reckon a simple question that would hold true for whether it's pro athletes or people coming into tomorrow's private clinic is just asking people directly, you know, look them in the eye and say, if we've got a game tonight or if we've got a game this weekend, do you think you could play? And generally people know, like in their heart, they're like, yep, I'm good. Like, I feel great, no concerns. Or they'll just, if you give them a, a little bit of a chance to think about it. They might hesitate. Yeah, but I'm not sure about how I'd go defending this person. Or I'm not confident if I could run more than 80%. And sort of tease that out. And so it's a bit like an outcome measure where you're asking a questionnaire. But that, a lot of the times, will help guide your decision. If you can see someone doesn't feel they're not ready to play and you back that up with some of your clinical measures or what you've seen during the rehab process... Uh, then you make a joint decision about what the right thing is. We'll just take a, a quick break there in the chat with David and uh, just to let you know uh, that we have now released a in-person event for later this year uh, that is live and up on the website for full details and that's with Tim McGrath on ACL Rehab and Return to Play 
for ACLs and also other knee pathologies. Uh, that'll be a two-day course, uh, highly practical, held at the SN Football Club. Uh, and those who don't know Tim, Tim has done extensive research, holds a PhD in ACL and also has worked uh, in numerous top-line sporting clubs uh, from rugby and through to the AFL. So get on and have a look at that. Uh, and, and we're looking forward to hosting Tim in November. Right, Dave, so they're, they're, that all goes to plan and that player's back and continues on and, and plays well um, after your expert management. Uh, on the occasion whereby an athlete has continued instability issues at their ankle, uh, so chronic ankle instability over a period of time, what are some considerations for surgery intervention for these um, athletes and uh, yeah what are some considerations you guys take in and and your experiences with um, athletes going through a a stabilization of the ankle so i think a lot of recurrent instabilities the first question we want to do is ask how good their rehab has been so someone might say yeah i saw a physio once or twice they gave me some exercise and so in their mind, they've had good rehab and maybe they did that a couple of times and they self-managed after that. So I'd want to tease out a little bit more about what level of rehab they've been, how diligent they've been with some sort of risk reduction program, how well do they tape, have they tried different shoes. So I want to tick off that all those things have been tried in a non-operative approach over the years. But there's absolutely going to be ones that they've done everything right they're pro athletes, they do their risk reduction programs in the gym or at court, um, they tape and brace and they're still getting uh, recurrent instability and that might be minor ones where they just tweak it and they have to modify a session and then they're back tomorrow or they've got low level effusion all the time just because the ankle is unstable and they're just having moments of uh, irritation but they never miss games and I've certainly seen a number of them. Uh, but then they're finding they just can't perform as well. Like they just don't trust pushing off their left leg. They can't defend quite as well because they just when they react, it's just a little bit slower or they hesitate. So if it starts impacting on performance, then you have to start thinking about is there other options for them? Or if someone's having an um, ankle sprain that's leading to particularly time loss, uh, but it could just be recurrent injuries that are you're worried is going to cause further pathology. So osteoarthritis would be one um, later on down the track. And I've seen guys 33, 34 retire from basketball because of advanced osteoarthritis in the ankles because of recurrent instability. So you may want to think about um, if they're spraining their ankles multiple times within a season or within a year, they've done all the right rehab approaches, then absolutely getting a orthopedic input about if a reconstruction would be appropriate for them is absolutely cons- uh, worth considering. Okay, and we're talking a little uh, about this off air before the podcast and I guess um, looking into those ones, I know some basketballers, for instance, have really extensive range of motion, so need a walls of you know 15 plus, but for those athletes that don't, and we're talking here you know less than six, less than eight centimetres, what is the potential downside of the surgery? And I'm referencing here, you know, ankle stiffness or loss of range of motion. Is that a potential outcome or is these days, um, you know, with the early intervention, the, the working closely with the surgeon, we can sort of um, mitigate some of those potential issues? Yeah, I think a, a consequence of surgery 
could be some loss of range of motion, uh, and mainly talking dorsal flexion, is what we're probably going to struggle to regain. And that might be because of a little bit of arthrofibrosis. So maybe a sign of otis post-op, arthrofibrosis, and so they just capsular lose some range. Maybe their, on the flip side, maybe some of their range was limited pre-op by some anterior osteophytes. And as part of the surgery, maybe that gets um, scoped and cleaned out as well. So it may not impact on their range or might conversely change it. So like anything, I'm going to sit on the fence here, but it's case by case basis. But there's for sure a chance that someone might lose some leader wall type dorsiflexion range. And whether or not that will impact on their movement mechanics kind of depends on their starting point. Depends on their sport. You touched on it there, like I've got guys running around with a needle wall of four centimetres and they function at super athletic, function at such a high level and then other people at the other end have 15 to 20 centimetres needle wall. So there's no single answer to you there, but I, I think we have to acknowledge that the outcome is do we get better stability? Do they stop having recurrent ankle sprains? And if they've lost one or two centimetres of range as a result of that, Hopefully they've uh, lost or stabilised their inversion range because that was the purpose of having done it. But if they end up with a slightly stiffer angle but they stop injuring it, then that's a successful outcome. Certainly well answered. Okay, to sort of uh, we'll move towards the tail end of the podcast, mate. It's been really great to have a chat through around um, ankles and, and again, uh, your take through on the masterclass where we get to see all these exercises and see the types of change direction drills you do in the basketball landing based drills and some of your benchmark testing was was top top class uh to talk to just one other sort of uh i'm sure pretty common uh pathology that you get in basketball and uh, again you can maybe uh enlighten us with sort of what sort of um how many athletes generally present with patellar tendinopathy and um of those ones how do you go about managing them and 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 give us a baseline of i guess your monitoring and, and what their week looks like with you keeping tabs on those symptoms so we saw spoke before that ankle sprains are the most common injuries in basketball and that's certainly true from a time loss perspective uh patellar tendinopathies in particular you at an elite level anyway you have in a squad of 15 there'll be two to four grumbling away with patellar tendinopathy at any one point in time they don't necessarily lead to time loss they may lead to load modification uh, but they're absolutely prevalent so what we will do is we'll try and pick them up early we'll have ways that we'll monitor guys and that could be a single leg decline squat and looking for pain vas out of 10 or just the quality of how well they do that. Can they report minimal symptoms but actually do it with a suboptimal movement pattern? So we'll monitor that way. We're at training and games all the time, so we're just checking in with people. It's pretty informal. We're not asking them to fill in any um, daily wellness. We're just checking in. How are you feeling? How's your knee pulled up? And if someone's flagging, actually it was a bit sore at training yesterday or it took 20 minutes to warm up, then that's what we'll start exploring a bit further. But what I would really recommend is any management or load management should be quite well planned. You might have those really acute reactive ones that someone's maybe done a new gym program or they just had a double header on the weekend and their knees pulled up a bit sore Monday, Tuesday, and it doesn't take much to settle them down. It might be some manual therapy, it might be 
few gym modifications, one or two lighter training sessions, and they're stable and back to normal. But there's other ones that have been grumbling on for a while and then suddenly tip over and they're now can't single leg squat. They're painful throughout the whole training session. It's starting to affect the way they play or just their their approach and happiness about how good they feel on court and how well they're performing. So in those ones, load modification can't just be a simple, oh, we'll back you off for a couple of days and see what happens and then go again next week. You need to take a bigger plan for that because tendons, they just it's not like other conditions where you can settle something down and three days later they're back and off you go. Uh, you need to, so if you're going to shut someone down or if you're going to modify the amount they're doing, you need to start thinking, all right, is this for two weeks? Is it for four weeks? Is it for the rest of the season? And stick that approach in because if you're too short in your load modification, if you just throw them back into what they were doing too quickly, the symptoms will come straight back up and then they're going to yo-yo. They'll feel good, feel bad, feel good, feel bad. So you need to plan it out about how long you think they'll need modifications. And the reality is that tendons are hard to settle in season. And there's some good evidence about this. That The best chance we've got to settle them down is with an off-season approach where they're not on court, they're not running and jumping, they're not doing the same intensities. And then a pre-season of getting in the gym, getting some quad strength, well, whole kinetic chain, but certainly working on quad strength, uh, working on building up their capacity and slowly introducing running, jumping loads, building up training intensities, your off-season, pre-season is your chance to settle it down. So in-season, you're managing symptoms. You may need a load modification for a period of time, but there isn't any magic bullet that we're going to fix these in two or three days. So having a really robust plan, getting the athletes buy-in, getting the S&C and the coaches on board, so that's the load modification. And then absolutely we'll look for rehab exercise, uh, isometric Spanish squats might be something we throw in quite routinely as a first line of defense. For me, isos, are, when they reduce symptoms, they're awesome. They're not for everyone. And sometimes the depth doesn't feel great for everyone, but it's a nice quick bit of Panadol, basically, bit of pain relief that someone can do prior to training and just warm the knee up a bit faster. And then in the gym, we'll find what we think they need to work on more. So is it do they need more heavy quads? And that could be a knee extension or a leg press, maybe a sled, sled drag. Maybe they need more glutes to work on hip stability. So glute med, hip stability, maybe glute max for power, maybe it's calf. But they'll get some extras in the gym um, based on what we feel is deficient in their kinetic chain. Yeah, well, that was a really comprehensive answer. And I was going to touch on some work around what you're doing in the gym, but I think, yeah, sort of highlighted... Uh, there around the the yo-yo effect of tendons and certainly setting up a plan from the get-go around your load management but obviously not forgetting um, the importance of what they're doing in the gym and to tailor that to that athlete so um, perfect mate that's really sound advice um, for any physio out there I'm sure working with any any level of athlete Um, to start sort of bringing bringing it all together I guess um, mate what's uh, to, to give people the opportunity to sort of get in touch you, you, you mentioned um, zone 34 at the start and people could look that up I'm sure to get in touch with you but um, are you happy to people to reach out and if so how they go about doing that yeah more than happy for people to reach out uh, to be honest just email me david at zone34.com.au um, you that's going to be the fastest way for me to get back to you I'm on email all the time um, I am around on the socials, but I rarely post. I try and avoid going on there too much. So, yeah, hit me up with an email. Always keen to 
connect with uh, brighter minds than mine or the next generation coming through. And if I can give them a little bit of advice, happy to. Yeah, perfect. And and for you, what's up? What's up next? Uh, Boomers circuit coming up, I believe. Uh, World Cup. Uh, fill us in a little bit on on some movements there. And yeah, what's happening in the next few few months? Yeah, so World Cup comes up this year. It's being held in uh, Philippines, Japan, and Indonesia. Uh, Boomers have been drawn into a group in Japan to start with. So August one is when we start our uh, team camp. Uh, End of August is when the World Cup proper starts, done by September 12th, and I'll get off the plane and roll straight into Sydney Kings and Sydney Flames pre-season. And then another six months of living the basketball dream. Yeah, I love that, mate. Sounds uh, like you are living the dream. Uh, look, we won't hold you up any longer. Uh, super appreciative of your time to jump on, chat through ankles, uh, and, and I guess a, a bit of your work throughout basketball and what, what that does look like. Um, and for those who really want to tap into a little bit more of that knowledge, they can certainly reach out to you and very generous to pass on your email as well as uh, check out your masterclass and they can use up the seven-day free trial to have a really good watch of that and, and learn from the best. So thanks heaps for your time, Dave. And um, yeah, mate, we wish you all the best in the upcoming um, basketball circuits. No, I appreciate it, Nick, and love your work with Sportsmap. Uh, it's been a great resource for me, so keep it up. Thanks, mate. Champion. Cheers.